Welcome. You're listening to a lecture by Professor Jean d'Aspremont, given at McGill University on March 30th, 2016, presenting his forthcoming book on the mysticism of international legal argumentation. This event was a joint production of the Hans and Tamar Oppenheimer Chair in Public International Law and Interhentis, the McGill Journal of International Law and Legal Pluralism. Thanks for being with us. to this event. I'm, uh, I'm Isabel, I'm the coordinator of the Hansen Tamer Hopenheimer Chair in Public International Law. As most of you know, um, <coughs> Professor François Crepeau is the director of the, the Oppenheimer Chair. Unfortunately, he was unable to come today. Um, but I'm, uh, so I'm also the editorial chair of Interrentes, the McGill Journal of International Law in Legal Pluralism, who's uh, co-hosting this event today. It's a real pleasure for me to be welcoming Professor Aspremont today. Uh, almost three years ago, I had taken a class with Professor Cassandra Steer, um, where we explored um, international legal theories and uh, what it meant to be a participant <coughs> or, um, or subject in international law. And this class relied heavily on this book uh, that was edited by Professor Aspremont. Um, and so to me, as a young law student, at a time where my mind was not uh, yet corrupted, uh, where I did not uh, think like a lawyer. Um, this class and this book were the starting point uh, for a reflection, for um, a remise en question, what it meant, um, what, what, what was the structure and the foundation of international law. Then in 2014, I was part of a group of students who started um, Interrentes because we felt um, there was a gap that needed to be filled uh, in the academic world and at the faculty. Uh, so Interrentes has the aim uh, to challenge the state-centric approach um, or the state-centric conceptualization of international law. And so the work and research done by Professor Daspremont uh, greatly informed this critical approach uh, we wanted to adopt. So all of this to say that I'm personally very pleased to be welcoming uh, Professor Daspremont and the faculty today. And uh, without any further ado, I will leave the floor to Professor Cassandra Steer, uh, who will be moderating the conference. Thank you. Thank you, Isabel, and thank you so much for all your efforts to put everything together as usual. Um, so, at the beginning of my academic career, I had the benefit of Jean's AIR right from the beginning. Um, I went to him with questions because I was dabbling in New Haven theory and, and struggling with, you know, can I uh, extract the descriptive aspect of it, which I found very compelling, from the rather disturbing normative conclusions of this theory. And uh, Jean was one of the few uh, professors, possibly in Europe, willing to have that conversation with me. Um, and I really benefited from the way that he helped me dig into questions and tear them apart. Uh, and so I was also very happy when, uh, so I, I contributed to the edits of volume that uh, Isabel just mentioned, and when Sean allowed me to use that as the basis for a course here at McGill. Uh, and so it's a really great honor to welcome you here to McGill, former colleague and friend. Um, I did have to look up his bio to make sure that I could catch up with everything that he does, because he moves very fast. Um, so not only is he a part-time full professor at the University of Amsterdam as a professor of international law theory, uh, he's also a full professor at the University of Manchester, professor of international law, where he set it up, he's founded the Manchester <coughs> International Law Centre, uh, together with Professor Ian Scrooby. Um, and they do wonderful things, <coughs> it's grown in a very short time, I think you said you have 38 
uh, a contributing scholar to that institute already. Um, he is the general editor of the Cambridge Studies in International and Comparative Law, the director of the Oxford Database on International Organizations, a member of the Scientific Advisory Board uh, of the European Journal of International Law, uh, and the series editor of the Mellon Shield Studies in International Law. And in between all of that, he teaches and writes very challenging scholarship, which um, I'm very glad that we're going to hear about today, um, which is your latest project on mysticism, the mysticism of international law. So I'm just going to give you the floor, and then when you're ready to open up the dialogue, that's what we'll do. Thank you very much. I told you to be sure. <laughs> I'm not sure you It's not my fault. That's your bio. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much. I probably should stand, given the, given the, the setup. It, I want to keep this very informal, but I'll, I'll nevertheless uh, stand up. I'm, I'm very thankful you're all here tonight. I appreciate it. It's, it's late. You're all very busy. But I'm very happy to see that uh, international law and international legal theory is still drawing some, some interest. Uh, I, I feel a, a bit embarrassed that this book has been mentioned twice, this book on participants, because it's a terrible book. Uh, I wish it had never uh, come to, to life. Um, well, having said that, I think very bad scholarship can be conducive to, to new ideas and, and new insights. So using a bad book for teaching is actually not a bad thing. Uh, having said that, I do think it's a bad book, even if there is a great chapter by Gisela. No, no, that's a bad chapter. Uh, <laughs> but it, I think it's a terrible book. Uh, but, but that's a story for, for another day. I'm not going to, to, to revert to these, to these debates on, on, on non-state actors. I, I do think that the concept of non-state actors is completely unhelpful uh, for, for reasons I, I may actually come back to um, later on. I, I do think it's, 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 it's too loaded and it, it, it conveys an, an image of, of international law as a, as a pluralized order. Uh, it, 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 it reinforces this myth that there has someday been a Westphalian order, which I do think is a, is a creation of interwar scholars. But, but anyway, that, that's a non-state actor is a question for, for another day. Today, I'm, I'm here to present some, some work in progress. Uh, and, and I really want to emphasize this. It's, it's, it's a book which has been in the making for, for some years. The ambition is to, uh, to finalize it in the next six months. But at this stage, I'm, I've come here to, to, to pick your brains. I'm afraid this is a very self-serving exercise. I'm here to, to, to pick your brains with a view to, um, to streamlining or fine-tuning uh, parts of the arguments at, the, at, a, at a later stage. So uh, thanks, many thanks for coming and, for, and, and thanks in advance for, for providing feedback on, on what is still, uh, as I said, uh, work in progress. And I do think that's the way we do scholarship these days. Uh, we, we go out in the public and, have your, and we have our ideas tested uh, uh, by, um, by, by peers, and that's exactly what I'm, what I'm doing now. So, so, so I'm, I'm not yet wedded to the argument, and maybe you'll destroy it completely today. Uh, just, uh, and, and that's why I think you shouldn't hesitate to be, uh, to be very critical during the, during the discussion. Things are still partly uh, in, in flux. Um, let me also say, as a matter of introduction, that I'm, I'm extremely pleased to, to be back here uh, at, at McGill. Uh, last time was actually five years ago when I also indulged in a self-serving exercise, and I came, uh, René was very kind to, to, to invite me uh, to, to present my work on formalism, and I remember that it proved pretty controversial, uh, and I think five years later René still disagrees with the argument, but that's, that's fine, that's part of our, of our job, so it's a, it's a great pleasure to be back 
five years later with, with another argument, which, which actually continues the, the earlier argument on the role of legal forms in the autonomy of laws as an argumentative practice. But I'll come back to that. So let me, let me thank you once again. Let me thank uh, Cassandra and Isabel for setting this up and uh, Inter Gentes. I, I, I think it's, a, it's an excellent initiative. initiative. I think in law journals need to be reformed. I do think the traditional model of law journals need, need, needs to be adjusted. And, and apparently, I think Inter Gentes is uh, a trailblazer in, in this respect. <coughs> Mysticism in international legal argumentation. So that's maybe why you came to mind. Let me sketch out the argument. Now let me say the argument in a, in a nutshell. Uh, it, it is a, a very, actually the argument amounts to a very simple claim. It's pretty simple. The claim is, and it's a descriptive claim. The claim is that legal argumentation about it international law, so the way we argue about international law, is actually articulated around two main uh, uh, pillars. Uh, on the one hand, the doctrines, the fundamental doctrines of international law, which I call the Gospels, responsibility, sources, subjects, uh, hierarchy of your scorgans, and so on and so on. These are the Gospels. These are the, the what I would call the the packages or packages of modes of legal reasoning, uh, sets of modes of legal reasoning, and that's the first pillar, the first component uh, around which international legal, international legal argumentation is, is articulated. The second pillar being uh, what I call the canonical text, that is these authoritative repositories where we allegedly find the doctrines. And so on the one hand we have the Gospels, the main doctrines, uh, these these sets of modes of legal reasoning, about sources, responsibility, uh, and so on. And on the other hand, we have these canon canonical texts um, from which the Gospels are allegedly derived. The Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, uh, Article 38 of the Statute of the ICJ, uh, the Montevideo Convention on the Rights and Duties of States, the Articles on State Responsibility, and so on. Gospels, canonical texts. International legal argumentation is all about this. It's all about uh, gospels which are allegedly derived from the canonical text. And this means that actually these two components are united in a certain way. And, and my claim, again, a descriptive claim, is that they are united by a genealogical link. So international legal argumentation, and that's actually the first consequence or finding attached to this descriptive claim is that international legal argumentation is possible because we have created a genealogy between some doctrines, gospels, and some authoritative texts, the canonical text. And they, the two are united by a genealogical link. And this is what makes uh, international law, uh, an argumentation about international law, uh, possible. Um, and, and I think, so that's, that's the main descriptive, main descriptive claim. Uh, there are all kinds of consequences uh, derived, uh, derived from this. And, and I think one of, and something I will, I will come back to in, in, in a moment, uh, the, the, the main consequence uh, in, from, from this descriptive uh, expository framework is that the current accounts are uh, uh, based on, on rules, 
on sources, on lawmaking, on interpretation, uh, on rhetoric, and so on, actually um, fail to provide uh, a sufficient or an adequate account of what's going on in international legal argumentation. So my point here, and the point of the project, is, is to provide an alternative account, an alternative framework, which is a descriptive framework, an expository framework, to understand what is at work when we make claims about, about international law. And, and it's an, an invitation to, to back away from models uh, based on sources, rules, lawmaking, uh, uh, interpretation, and so on. And, and, and I'll, later on, I'll say why I don't think there is a rupture here uh, from, from my, my, my previous work. So that's, that's the argument in a, in a nutshell. Um, and, and I'll show that all this and the making of, of the structures of legal argumentations cannot be reduced to, to, to either lawmaking or interpretation. Um, so thus an invitation to move away from theories of sources, theories of interpretation. A few caveats before I spell this out and flesh this out. Um, this is meant to be an expository uh, framework. It's, it's descriptive. It's a descriptive claim. It doesn't seek to explain anything. anything. It's not an explanatory framework. Um, I don't think it's critical. I don't think it's critical. The, the word critical is being overused and abused. I don't think it's, it's critical, at least not in the the North American sense of uh, the word. It's true that the argument uh, ventures a little bit into the pre-reflective structures of international argumentation, which is the traditional territories of, of, of the critique. But, but I'm not going after false necessities, uh, false determinism. Uh, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not claiming that this genealogical structure of international legal argumentation is pathological. So in a way, I make this, this descriptive claim in, in rather agnostic terms. I'm not saying that international legal argumentation is invalid. Uh, I'm not saying it should, be, it should be reformed. No, I'm just trying to shed light on some of the, the structures of international uh, legal argumentation. And I'm not seeking to invalidate uh, the way we make legal claims about, about international law. So that's the first caveat. Uh, a second caveat is that this framework is not meant to be exhaustive. It's not meant to, 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 to be exclusive of other accounts of uh, international legal argumentation. Now, I'll come back to that. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's not incompatible with other say, constructivist accounts of, of legal argumentation or accounts based on the aesthetics of, 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 of legal argument uh, uh, and so on and so on. So it's, it's not meant to be exhaustive. Second caveat. Third caveat. Um, as you can see, I'm trying to preempt some criticisms already. Um, the, the third <coughs> caveat is that um, this is all without prejudice of what may be going on in other areas um, in other uh, normative and legal orders. And uh, it may well, be, may well be that you find the same genealogical structure in domestic law, in Canadian law, in US law, 
uh, in European law and so on, in transnational law. Uh, but, but that's not something I'm interested in. So my claim is not meant to be universal. I don't want to generalize this descriptive framework. I'm, I'm focusing exclusively uh, on, on international law. I'm aware that probably some similar dynamics are at work in, in other areas. And when I think of European law, I do think that you see the same genealogical structure. But, but, but I, my, I fall short of, of making any claim about other areas of law, and, and you understand that I do so to, 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 to protect uh, uh, myself. Um, so these are just a few, a few caveats to, 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 to preempt uh, already some, some criticism and, and, and to contextualize the, the, the project. Let, let me now just actually spell out all these notions that I've, I've, I've introduced uh, earlier. Uh, and, and so let me elaborate a little bit on these, uh, on what I call these, this expository framework. Um, and I'd like to proceed in, in three steps. Um, I'll, I'll start by fleshing out, substantiating all these notions, gospels, uh, canonical text, and the genealogy. Uh, thereafter, I'll, and that will be the second step, I'll outline the main consequences of, of, <coughs> of this descriptive claim, especially in terms of the relevance of our current models to understand legal argumentation. That will be the second point or second step. And I'll end with a few, uh, a few remarks. Uh, after I've provoked you, I'll try to quiet you and to, to, to keep you uh, quiet and, and preempt some, some criticism. So three steps. Um, and I'll start by, by spelling out this, this notion uh, further. So the argument, as I've said, is that international legal argumentation is built on, on the one hand, gospels, main doctrines, and on the other hand, some canonical text. The two of them being united by a genealogical link. Well, gospel, let me reiterate a little bit, and, and I'll try to provide a few, uh, a few examples. Well, let, let me elaborate a little bit on the notion of, of, of gospel. And I'll say why I have chosen, I'll say later a few words about why I have chosen this uh, theological vocabulary. And, and I'll tell you why, and, and obviously not the first one. Um, but but that's, that's for later. Well, gospel, what I mean by gospel is these packages of modes of legal reasoning we are trained into. Take responsibility, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of, of system of, of legal argumentation uh, uh, whereby we are supposed to make our legal claims on responsibility of, say, states uh, on the basis of a breach, attribution, and so on and so on. Uh, so it's a package of modes of legal reasoning. And in international law, this has been organized on the breach rather than culpa or fault, for instance. Uh, so these these are the sorts of grammatical packages. Uh, some, some people would call this foundational doctrines. Other would call this path to legal arguments. Other would say the seeds of, of, of legal arguments. The point is that these are so packages of modes of legal reasoning which, which have a prescriptive character. They prescribe those modes of legal reasoning we must rely on and deploy if we want to make a legal claim. 
And if we want to have any chance uh, that that our argument is, is received and, and validated by, uh, by others. And so these are packages of modes of legal reason. <coughs> these packages, these gospels, are, are certainly not uh, stable, coherent, and determinate. On the contrary, they're very, they're, they're very fluid, they're very indeterminate, they're very unstable. Um, and they are unstable despite being the objects of codification enterprises or restatement, restatement in, in judicial decisions or restatement in, 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 in scholarship, in, in, in the literature. Actually, these restatements very often will, will fuel even more instability. Uh, uh, so they're not stable units. They're not stable systems of uh, uh, legal argumentation. The main function of gospels, again, responsibility, uh, personality, sources, hierarchy, is to axiomize modes of legal reasoning. So it's to systematize. Each gospel would provide, a, would put in place a, a microsystem of legal argumentation. It will axiomize uh, the, the modes of legal reasoning, it will organize the modes of legal reasoning, um, th this axiomization or systematization found in each gospel can be of, of can vary in degree. Now, if, you take, if you take the doctrine of customary international law, it is a very low level of systematization, uh, of axiomization. If you take the doctrine of responsibility, it's a more sophisticated uh, uh, it comes with a more sophisticated uh, organization or axiomization of modes of, of, of legal reasoning. Um, so each gospel will, would systematize, axiomize the modes of legal reasoning. Uh, and I've just given you a few, uh, a few, a few examples. This systematization is not, it's not only restrictive. I mean, it, it restricts as much as it creates. It creates an argumentative space where we can make legal claims about sources, about subjects, about responsibility, and so on. So it, it, it has a constitutive dimension. And by systematizing some modes of legal reasoning, it creates an argumentative space uh, within which all legal, legal claims uh, <coughs> must, be, must be found. Um, These systematizations of modes of legal reasoning, uh, the axiomization, which, which is brought about by these gospels, uh, is not always visible, uh, it's not always tangible, uh, especially in, in contemporary legal scholarship where, where these main gospels are actually understood not as packages of modes of legal reasoning, but they are understood as uh, sets of rules. Uh, we speak, we, we, international lawyers would generally speak about the rules on sources, the rules on responsibility, uh, the rules on statehood, uh, and so, all this axiomization and organization of, of modes of legal reasoning disappears behind this ruleness, right? this rule-based representation of gospels. Right? That's an inclination of international lawyers, which is to contem contemporary international lawyers. It's not always been the case. To, 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 to visualize and, and <coughs> represent these gospels, these doctrines, in terms of rules. And, and, and I do think that's, that's probably something I'm going after, is that I don't think 
the main doctrines of international law should be, the, the gospel should be understood as, as, as rules. Um, no, on the contrary, they should be, these, the organization of these modes of legal reasoning should be understood as, as the result of an intervention by several or by different actors. It's not, and again, I'll come back to that, but this is not about rule making. It's about an intervention by several actors imposing on others certain modes of legal reasoning. And, and if you think in terms of rules and lawmaking, this obfuscates this inter in intervention uh, by, by all these actors, judges, scholars, legal advisors, and so on, uh, 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 that, that are aimed at imposing certain modes of legal reasoning. I do think that in the organizations of modes of legal reasoning in each gospel, there is an act of violence, uh, borrowing from, from Derrida. There is an act of, of violence uh, whereby and by virtue of which certain modes of legal reasoning are imposed on others. I see some of you frowning, and maybe it's, it's, it's a reminder that I should give you more examples. Well, this intervention, take the making of the law of responsibility. It's been a hundred of years of a, of a battle between several actors to uh, impose certain ways to argue about responsibility. And choices were made following the forceful intervention of some Italian legal scholars to have responsibility construed along the lines of breach uh, and, and attribution and, and circumstance precluding wrongfulness and so on and so on. Um, and so that's what I call the intervention. There's an intervention by certain actors to impose some modes of legal reasoning and to organize them in a certain way. Um, and and, and that's, that comes very close to, to, to an act of, of violence. So that's what I mean by gospel. And as you can see, I'm, I'm elaborating on all these notions and, and I'm refining the, the argument a little. Let me now turn to the other component. And, and I do hope this is not too arcane and, and I will keep on giving you more, more examples. Uh, I turn now to the, to the second pillar or component of international argumentation, the canonical text. Again, I'll come back later on to, to the reasons of, of, of these or the rationale of this uh, theological vocabulary. The canonical text. Well, what I mean by that, as the, I, refer, I, mean, I refer to this authoritative text uh, international lawyers rely on when they make legal argument. And these, legal, these authoritative texts, which you need to, to cite in a way or another in any legal argument on these basic notions. And whenever you, dis, you deploy these main and key doctrines, you have to refer to some canonical text. Vienna Convention, Article of State Responsibility, uh, 1933 Montevideo Convention, and so on and so on. These are usually texts with, which have, an, in a way, another formal character. It doesn't need, necessarily need to be binding, uh, but it needs some, call, some kind of, of a formal character, whether it is a binding treaty or whether it is uh, the, the, the the result of a codification uh, exercise. Oh, they, they, I've cited so far four main canonical texts. There are others, probably the United Nations uh, Charter can, can be, is one of these canonical texts, at least when it comes to, 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 to the use of force. I think judicial decisions can themselves sometimes be canonical texts. Take the reparations advisory opinion uh, on the law of internationalizations or, or 
the, the, the Barcelona attraction. Uh, uh, so these canonical texts are not, uh, do not only boil down to, 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 to formal uh, uh, international instruments. They can also be judicial decision. The main function of these texts, of these canonical texts, is the universalization of the gospel. These texts uh, perform the function of making these mo the modes of legal reasoning found in the gospel, responsibility, sources, and so on, and they impose them on the entire profession. They make them, they make them universal. And in that sense, they, they hide and obfuscate the intervention I was speaking about. Uh, this, the intervention of these Italian scholars to impose breach as the condition of responsibility is obfuscated by the canonical text, the 2001 Articles on Such Responsibility, which a lawyer would refer to uh, when he or she makes a claim about the responsibility uh, of, of a text. So it, by virtue of the canonical text, um, the, the, the intervention in the making of the modes of legal, uh, legal argumentation, the modes of legal reasoning, is, is hidden, is, un, is left unrecognized. Uh, and at the same time, this universalization gives, uh, so the canonical text, the universalization by virtue of the canonical text, gives assurances to all the professionals involved in the business of legal argumentation and gives assurances that the argument they make today will still be understood uh, uh, in the next century. It will still be understood tomorrow. And so it gives assurances for, for the future. So that's what I mean by canonical text. And these canonical texts have the function to universalize the modes of legal reasoning prescribed by the gospel. I hope you're still following me, because I'm, I'm trying, I will continue to, to refine and <clears throat> nuance all this. This only works if the Gospels and the canonical text are united in a way or another. Well, they are united by what I call um, a genealogical link. You must create a certain genealogy uh, to unite the doctrines and these canonical texts and these authoritative repositories. And, and, and you need to unite them to, to create a symbiosis whereby there will be axiomization and universalization, whereby the doctrines will look like they are derived from the canonical text. And that's very central. This is what I call uh, genealogy. It's, it's, you must create a kinship between the two. The, the doctrine of sources must look like it comes from Article 38. The modes of legal reasoning on responsibility must look like they come from 2001, Articles on Such Responsibility. The doctrine of statehood must look like it comes from the Montevideo Convention on the Rights and Duties of State. It is as if they are derived from uh, the canonical text. But this genealogy, this kinship, is actually artificial. Oh, by artificial, I, I do not mean uh, that they, they, they false uh, by reference to some sort of reality. No, what I mean is that it's artificial because in the making of these modes of legal reasoning, the gospel always precedes the canonical text. 
we first design, we first design the modes of bigger reasoning, and thereafter, we actually uh, create this link with the canonical text. We find a canonical text and we create a kinship between uh, our modes of legal reasoning and these canonical texts. Let me give you a few, two examples, something you're probably familiar with. Customary international law, very, very fashionable for some reason, it's always been fashionable, uh, which may be surprising for such an unsophisticated doctrine. Well, you open a textbook or you go to any British university and you will be told that as is prescri prescribed by Article 38 of the Statute of the Court, custom is made of two elements. Or at least the ascertainment of custom uh, must meet two criteria in your Euro's practice, as <coughs> is prescribed by Article 38. Well, that's exactly the outcome of the creation of this artificial genealogy. You go and look at the travaux of Article 38. Well, these guys, poor guys, they had to spend a, a month in a, in a rainy uh, city of The Hague in 1920, July 1920. And one afternoon came on the agenda of the Committee of Jurists the sources or the applicable law of the court. As we all know, they, they just fought, fought with one another about general principles. They literally spoke about custom for 20 minutes. 20 minutes. And they came with this uh, description of custom, which now we deem clumsy or poorly drafted, because it, the, the definition of custom in Article 38 does not distinguish between opinion and practice. Well, but that's simply because, first, they didn't discuss it, and at the time, the dominant approach to customary international law was the one-element doctrine. We didn't distinguish between the two elements. Actually, the two-element doctrine of custom international law is a creation of the permanent court in the 1920s. It is the permanent court which actually came with this prescription, with this requirement that we must systematically distinguish between uh, opinion juris and practice. Prior to the, to the permanent court, there was not such a thing. There was not such a thing. I mean, there are wonderful studies on this. Uh, if you, if you, uh, Peter Hagenmacher, for instance, has written this 150-page article describing this one-element customary uh, doctrine, customary law doctrine, prior to the 1920s. In the 1920s, there was not such a second two-element doctrine. Yet, all students, at least in the UK, are told that actually the two-element doctrine comes from Article 38. You open the, the report of, of, of Sir Michael, and the ILC work, and you look at the ILC work on, on customer international law, first paragraph, the mainstream or, or dominant approach to customer international law is the one prescribed by Article 38, which distinguishes between two elements. Well, that's what I call this, the creation of a genealogical link. We have a certain actor, a given actor, in this case, judges of the PCIJ, imposing certain modes of legal reasoning on custom. And later on, uh, the whole community made this derive not from the case of the court, but from Article 38. Even if originally Article 38 had nothing to do with the two-element doctrine. So that's just one example right, of, of, this, of the fact that the modes of legal reasoning, in terms of their making, precede 
their anchoring into the canonical text. The anchoring in the canonical text comes after. And, 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 and by virtue of this kinship, uh, the, the two, the Gospels and the canonical text, are united. <clears throat> and now we all say, when we make a legal argument on custom, that it comes from 38. Another very basic and elementary example is the doctrine of statehood. Also, not very sophisticated, to be honest. Well, as the story goes, and as all the textbooks tell us, the doctrine of statehood and the three, four elements are actually prescribed by the 1933 Montevideo Convention on the Rights and Duties of States. Well, have a look at the travels of, of Montevideo. Well, have a look at Montevideo itself. It's not a convention on statehood. They didn't care at all about this. I mean, there were works in South America, in Latin America, about statehood. But the convention is a convention on non-intervention. But yet, uh, for, more than, for, for, for more than 50 years, scholars have been actually anchoring and deriving, or at least they've been claiming that this do dominant doctrine of statehood comes from, from Montevideo, or the customary equivalent. So that's another example of, of an artificial genealogy created between a, a gospel uh, and a canonical text. Oh, the main upshot of this genealogical link is that it leaves, again, I'm repeating the argument, it leaves unrecognized the intervention by certain scholars to impose some certain modes of, of legal reasoning. It also allows international lawyers to forget about the origins of their modes of legal reasoning. So it, it creates a possibility of amnesia. Um, and it allows them to evade any inquiry into the foundation of their modes of of legal reasoning. And this is why it makes international legal argumentation possible. This is why it is because it allows this amnesia about the various interventions in, in the determination of the modes of legal reasoning that it makes international legal argumentation possible. And that's why you can see my, my work is not critical. My work is not, is not critical. So these are the main components of, of international legal argumentation. Gospels on the one hand, canonical text on the other, united by an, an artificial genealogical link. What are the consequences of this descriptive claim? And this is my, my second point. I'll be, uh, I'll be briefer. I do think that the consequence of this expository framework, again, it's not critical. But, but I mean, of course, I mean, the greatest form of power lies in the definition and the description. Uh, there are major consequences <coughs> flowing from this expository framework, from, from this descriptive claim. And I'd like to, to flag two of them. Um, actually, it shows that our current model on rules and lawmaking are completely insufficient uh, and deficient when it comes to explaining, uh, when it comes to describing the structure of international legal argumentation. And that's the first consequence. The way we design these modes of legal reasoning is not the result of a lawmaking process. The way we argue about responsibility, the way we argue about statehood, the way we argue uh, about sources is not the result of the making of Article 38, the making about 
uh, the Montevideo Convention, the making of the Vienna Convention, and so on. No. It is the result of some intervention by a multitude of actors. So, so we, we really need to move away from, from the idea of rules, from the idea of lawmaking, when it comes to describe the designs of our modes of legal reasoning. There are a great variety of interventions by a variety of actors, which, which lead to, to, to the imposition of certain modes of legal reasoning. And, and, and as you can see, it's, it completely reversed the, the process. According to a traditional account, a law-making or rule-based account, you would think of states or some subjects <coughs> adopting a certain instrument, international instrument, the Vienna Convention on Law Treaties, the, the, the Montevideo Convention on the Rights and Duties of States, and modes of legal reasoning being derived from these texts, after these texts have come into force. That, that would be a traditional, and that's kind of the traditional uh, understanding of the making of the structure of international implementation you find in most textbooks. The text comes first. We had the Vienna Convention, and from there, there on, and from then on, we had some modes of legal reasoning about the law of treaties. But, but actually, by virtue of this expository framework I'm putting forward, you actually reverse the picture. The modes of legal reasoning comes first. There are some choices made by certain actors, which are then, mm -hmm. then imposed on others by virtue of their anchoring into the canonical text. Uh, so, so it's no longer, the, the making of the structure of international argumentation is no longer a top-down process, it's, it's, it's a bottom-up uh, uh, formation. Um, and so that's, that's the first consequence, it's just a move away from all our traditional models. And, and again, I mean, I think responsibility is a good example here. Uh, we had hundreds of years of struggle, hundreds of years. 424 provisions, you can actually calculate the cost of the making of the modes of legal reasoning on responsibility. That's actually a very interesting exercise. A century of battle between professionals to impose certain ways to make legal claims about responsibility. And eventually all this was packaged in a nice uh, document, formal documents, and uh, the General Assembly in 2001 to note of the Article of Responsibility. The modes of legal reasoning, the determination of the modes of legal reasoning come first. They come first. So that's the first consequence, is that forget traditional lawmaking uh, account. And, and, and obviously, so think about the structure of international legal argumentation in terms of interventions rather than lawmaking. Well, these interventions do not end with, say, the adoption of the canonical text. Uh, well, these interventions will continue even after the, the, the modes of legal reasoning have been universalized. Um, so, so, so the interventions will, will, will continue because in the doctrines, the Gospels will, will constantly be, be adjusted by as a result of, of uh, continuous intervention. So that's the first consequence. The second consequence uh, is that the, the, our models based on interpretation do not, are not very helpful to understand the structure of international legal argumentation. I think if you, if you think about the structure of international legal argumentation in terms of interpretation, 
it is actually very misleading. Right? You think that actually the modes of legal argumentation are the result of an interpretation of the canonical text. No. Actually, what comes first, again, are the modes of legal reasoning. Right? The doctrine of statehood, the doctrine of responsibility. Um, you're not interpreting these canonical texts. What you are interpreting is actually more a tradition you've been trained into. So I'm not saying there is no interpretation. Interpretation is, is ubiquitous. But, but you're not actually inter interpreting these canonical texts. You're not interpreting the Montevideo Convention on the Rights and Duties of States. No, you interpret it what you've been trained to, that is, these three or four elements uh, of, of statehood. Again, it cannot be um, reduced to a matter of interpretation of the canonical text because the modes of legal reasoning uh, come first. So, so you, should, you should just move away from, um, you should move away from, from the idea that, that this is all a matter of interpretation. Or you may feel, actually all the professionals involved may feel they are involved in, in, in the interpretation of the canonical text, but that's again, that's, that's because they think of these doctrines in terms of rules. And I don't think that these main doctrines are rules. Um, I, I think they are different, they are modes of legal reasoning, but, but there is this, this idea of ruleness that, that obfuscates uh, what is at work uh, in, uh, in international legal <coughs> organization. Let me finish with, with a few concluding remarks. I mean, I think I've shared enough elements. I, I could refine it further, but, but let me just finish this la my last step uh, with, with just a few uh, uh, remarks probably some sort of additional caveats, and, and, and I'll have actually three of them. The theological vocabularies. Um, I told you I would justify myself a little. Well, the, the, the choice for that vocabulary is, is, is only for didactic purposes. It's only because I do think that it has very useful descriptive and analytical virtues. <clears throat> I am not making any claim about international legal argumentation being a theological activity. Um, I'm not saying this. I know some colleagues make that point. Um, I mean, if you take uh, Pierre Schlag, he would, he would tell you that law is the continuation of God by other means. I'm personally rather amenable to that, uh, but that's not the claim I'm making here. I'm not saying that international legal argumentation boils down to uh, theological activity. Nor am I making any claim about religion's engagement with international law, or the, the, the religious or theological foundations of, of international law. I'm not making any of these claims. Again, I'm certainly uh, amenable to this idea, and, and for instance, you may know that this is something Marty Koskinyumi is working on, uh, and has been working on for, for nine years now. Uh, I do think indeed that some theological structures of thought have permeated international legal argumentation, but that's not a claim I'm making. Obvi so it's, it's just a use of, a very self-serving and opportunistic use of these vocabularies. Uh, for descriptive purposes and, and analytical purposes. 
I'm not the first one to, to use theological frameworks and vocabularies to, to describe uh, international law, international unanimation. Obviously, uh, as we all know, Carl Schmitt did it, probably before him Leibniz uh, uh, also used, the, I mean, also claimed that, that, that law is, is actually articulated around secularized theological concepts. Uh, but I mean, Kelsum himself, <clears throat> Benjamin, if you take some legal realists of, of, of the beginning of the 20th century, they were quite keen on using theological vocabularies to, uh, to, to, to tell their story about the, the, the making of, of, of legal claims. Jerome Frank, for instance. Well, international lawyers do so as well. I mean, Marty Koskinimi has done so. David Kennedy, even James Crawford has been using these this theological vocabulary. So there's nothing, I, I believe, groundbreaking. And, and I don't think it's that provocative to use this. I mean, many others have done so for, for the same reasons. And, and I do think it serves its purpose. And, and that's my first concluding remark, or my first additional remark. Um, well, a word about mysticism. That's maybe the reason you came. I might disappoint you, but when, when I shared with, with Isabel uh, a few months ago my thoughts and then sent an abstract, I, I still at the time believed in the usefulness of, of the notion. Uh, and I thought it was a good descriptive framework for, for, for the phenomenon I'm, I'm going after. Uh, I was not, again, I was not the first one at, at the time. I mean, we all know that. Montaigne said that the law was mystical. Uh, Derrida actually drew on Montaigne, Montaigne and, and also used this idea of, of mysticism to, to justify actually the authority uh, of, of, of law. Again, legal realists, Cohen and, and others, also use mysticism. Pierre Schlag again uh, gladly indulges in this, in this idea. I think there is some merit. In, in, in using the idea of, of mysticism, uh, um, the fact that it's mystical. Uh, it's, this, this structure of legal argumentation, as I've said, ensures permanence. Um, it allows certain, amne certain amnesia. Uh, it fulfills the need for, for knowledge and ordering. But, but at the same time, I do find the notion too slippery. Uh, they also kind of major differences. Um, I don't think that these Gospels of International Law are meant to, to have a foundational role, to explain everything. Uh, I do think that, contrary to, to myth, the, the, the foundations of these Gospels can be traced back. It can be identified. Uh, so, so that's why I've moved away from the idea of mysticism. Um, and, and sorry for the disappointment, but, but, but I do think that that I actually don't need that descriptive framework. And also, I mean, we all know that in our scholarship, you shouldn't uh, juxtapose several analytical frameworks. You should just have one line of argument, one uh, analytical framework. And I do think that to explain, the, the, or at least to describe the rather simple phenomenon I'm describing, I, I, I only need this simple dichotomy, this, this simple distinction between gospels and, 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 and canonical texts. Last remark, and after you can start firing. Um, 
the idea of the international legal system. Uh, I do think this warrants a, a remark in the sense that this genealogical structure, that is the idea that the main sets, the main modes of legal argumentations are derived from some canonical text. Well, I do think that this genealogical structure is very conducive to the idea of an international legal system. Uh, I do think that this is one of the reasons uh, European international lawyers uh, are inclined to think about international law as a system. I do think that it is very instrumental in the sy systemic thinking about international law. However, I'm not making any claim in this respect. I'm not claiming, I'm not making any argument about <coughs> the idea of system. Um, even if, even if, it is no coincidence that the idea of system, the idea of an, an international legal system, emerged at the same time as all these main gospels. So when these main gospels were designed, actually, uh, this corresponds to the time the idea of, of an international legal system emerged in international legal thought. And, and we know it comes from uh, German public law uh, scholarship, and, and, and it was introduced in, in, in Anglo-American uh, legal thought by, by those whom we, we call the, the, the German-speaking emigres, Lauterbacht, Oppenheim, Schwarzenberger, and obviously Kelsen. Uh, they introduced the idea of, 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 of system in, in legal thought, which is actually at the, at the time when uh, the, the major and the key gospels of international law uh, 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 were in the making. So, so I certainly see a causal relationship between the making of these gospels, right, from a historical vantage point, making of the, the gospels and the rise of the idea of an international legal system. Uh, having said this, I am not making any claim about this. Um, to be honest, I don't think that the idea of system is very helpful, um, contrary to, to what many of my European counterparts may, may, may be thinking. So th that's the simple argument I'm making. I mean, the, the, th that's the framework. The, the, the rest of the book is, is just actually case studies. I, I look at how custom was made, as how responsibility was made. Uh, and, I, and I illustrate this with all the main doctrines of, of international law. Uh, uh, so that's, that, that's, that's the project. Um, I don't think it's, well, it depends on the audience. I mean, last week I was in Paris to present the argument. I can tell you that uh, I, my, I felt my life, I mean, I felt threatened for my life. Uh, I don't think here it would people would feel that uncomfortable with, with that argument. Uh, but having said this, this is still a work in progress, and, and, and I'm eager to hear your, your thoughts, but above all, I'm, I'm, I'm eager to hear your, your criticism. So I'm, I'm going to take a piece of paper, because I, I want to write down all your criticism. Uh, but uh, in any case, thank you for your attention. Uh, thanks for coming, to, for, for listening to, to some arcane international legal theory. I hope I've made this <laughs> concrete enough. Uh, and uh, I look forward to your reaction. So, I open the floor to discussion. I actually think we'll just go one by one, and, unless it turns into a three hour discussion, and then we'll gather some. But let's just start with that. Right. Uh, so, thanks a lot for uh, this. It was very informative and, and uh, interesting.
interesting. Um, maybe in primaries you should have gone for a secular version. This is an international argument. So you know how it is with these things. One is sort of I'm thinking in advance, what question am I going to ask him? You know, I need to think of something. I thought, well, I'll tell him I don't think mysticism really works as a word in the title you know, in the last two minutes. So obviously mysticism promises a lot, but it's then not particularly fair, right? You know, you know, what's mysticism, you know, kind of things, but it's like subjective knowledge of God that is not fair, right? So what you're talking about is something much more discreet. So I'm glad that you that you you're abandoning that, because it's it's slightly misleading. Although super interesting in itself, uh, but not what you're doing. Um, so the position of retreat is to say, well, uh, well, I'm still left with my dichotomy. And my reaction is, we, you know, you can't be that easily off the hook. I mean, one, you still need a good title. And the title can't be, I still have a good dichotomy. Right? So it can't be, there's this and there's that, and so somehow together they work in interesting ways. And then, of course, the language of, uh, is so theologically loaded but uh, you know, if not mysticism, you know, something. I mean, is it the theology of international law, or the canonical, uh, the canon of international law would be interesting. You know, what is the canon of, uh, of, uh, of international law? But it has to be, you know, which is it more of? Is it more of the gospel, or is it more of the canon? Um, and if you're using these words seriously, I mean, I have you know, so many thoughts going through my head as you were saying this. I get the ultimate argument, which to me is more important than the labels and whether which is the canon and which is the gospel. I think to sort of in reverse those or call different other things in the international world, the gospel and canon. So what I do get when you leave these labels aside is the notion that a lot of international law. Uh, and including international as it's presented to students, it consists in these kind of ossified, fossilized structures of legal argumentation where what you're offering to the student or the aspiring uh, international lawyer is, you know, a sort of cursory crystallization, you know, something that, that was painfully arrived at at the moment, but in fact cannot and should not be understood without all the doctrines that gave rise to it. And, and it's almost if we're giving a misleading key, we're saying, oh yeah, yeah, sources of international law, go to Article 38 and, you know, start from there. And we all know that that's not really how it works. Uh, I, I think to an extent, through interpretation of a canon, it's almost impossible that via the table preparatoire or you know the writings of uh, uh, famed publicists, one will not uncover to an extent the debt of these kind of fossilized fragments <coughs> of international legal reasoning to the foisonnement of discussions, but also the violence, right? The fact that it's, at some point, you know, why Roberto Ago or why, you know. Or you know Crawford deciding you know what actually there are no crimes that you know but Article 19 doesn't have a place right it's kind of a coup you know and everyone's tired by then it's been going on for 40 years so now we're stuck and you know and if you if you uh, some students and some pros will tell you well no there is no crime in international of a state in international law because it's not in 
um, it's not in the articles, it, and and that's quite impoverishing. Uh, but like, so if if that's what you're saying, and I, I think it's a really important point. I not I, I think by importing this kind of loaded uh, theological religious vocabulary, you're not necessarily helping your argument. Unless I think you could do more of a kind of sociology of religions or uh, you know something more use actual examples from theology where from whatever religion, I don't know, probably a religion of a book, but maybe another, where you could say, well, there's, you know, this religion had this pattern where at some point, you know, something becomes the canon, like a catechism, which is a sort of a reduced version, impoverished and, and obfuscating version of all the debates that preceded, and, you know, maybe that has a name in a particular theological tradition, etc. But I think it could actually do more of the tension between the arguments and the theological polemics and what then gets sort of you know, generally presented as the outcome right, in, in the practice of actual religion. No, thank thank you, Frederic. That's that's uh, that's of course uh, very relevant uh, and, and and compelling. I mean, it's true. I use these loaded terms. I use them and maybe underuse them or overuse them, uh, as you point out. Uh, they are very loaded, and in a way, they interfere. They pollute the argument. I'm not entirely wedded to to these to these vocabularies. I mean, the title of the book, so the, the stage is actually the Gospels of International Law, because I do think that actually the, the real linchpin is actually the Gospel rather than the canonical text. But as you said, you could make the, the, the other claim that actually what is really key is the canonical text, because this is what universalizes uh, the modes of legal argumentation. I, I'm not wedded to that. It's just, I, and I probably I could, with a few more sentences, explain the same thing without resorting to this, to, to this distinction. Um, I mean, I use it as a vehicle. Um, I mean, in, in, in the book itself, I, indeed, I draw on some parallels and examples of interventions in the rewriting of the actual Gospels, uh, intervention by certain actors, uh, but, but that it doesn't go further than that. So yes, I take the risk of polluting the argument with a very loaded vocabulary. Uh, that's maybe something that I, I should revisit. Uh, again, I'm not wedded to that. Uh, of course, you need, I mean, the marketing of ideas is very often as important as the content of your ideas. Uh, but, but as you said, maybe it's not uh, essential. I do think that, or maybe you want to react on it, but there is actually, you raise a very uh, maybe compelling criticism, which is that at least between the lines, that, that I'm, I'm a bit going after a straw man. Because you say, well, if you do a bit of interpretation of the travaux, you'll find this out. So actually, it's not revolutionary, it's not innovative. But that, that's maybe a, a question of, of audience. I mean, I, I barely survived in Paris. For sure, I wouldn't survive in the UK. I mean, you tell this to Michael Wood, Oh, this is recorded. I should be careful. Uh, uh, he would, of course, disagree. Radically disagree. OK. 
Can, can we cut this afterwards? <laughs> um, I mean, I work in the UK, so I have to be careful. Uh, so yes, maybe it's a, a storm in a cup of tea uh, from the perspective of, 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 of scholars and, and researchers in McGill. I, 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 can, I can see that. I'm not sure, okay, my comments, thank you for so long. I'm not sure, I have like comments slash questions, probably very superficial, I'm just gonna let it go. Um, no, I thought what your presentation was very interesting. Also, I thought it, to me, like what you advanced is as you say, simple and not that controversial, but maybe because like I'm looking into also like discourse of human rights. And so like, it's obviously something that's very, that's very interesting to me. And actually, we started with talking with Gospels and canon canonical texts, and the first thing that came to my mind is Averroes, which is a Muslim philosopher which discussed the, basically like the hidden meaning with that, uh, behind texts, and I thought like, I think, I thought it was an interesting parallel because you talked about those Gospels versus um, canonical texts, and this idea of basically Gospels being, I guess, the source, or maybe I misunderstand the sentence with that. But um, yes, it's very, as I, but I guess maybe a continuation of what Professor McVeigh was saying is that I thought it was interesting because you define gospels, again, like the interventions, almost sometimes violent. And, and to me, the idea of gospel is often of kind of like this, this accepted truth, which is, um, it, it's, I mean, from like, you know, a religious, like, theological point of view, this idea that Gospels are, are just like the accepted principle. So I thought it was interesting, not necessarily contradictory, but it was interesting to contrast the idea of Gospels as something that immovable versus uh, principles that, because they derive from interventions, will and, uh, will and are constantly changing. So, um, and also, I guess, maybe, I was wondering if you could elaborate more on, also on the idea of legal reasoning because I thought, I, I wasn't sure if, so by legal reasoning you meant in, like those interventions by scholars because otherwise I feel like, um, I guess legal rules by definition will derive from legal reasoning, although it did take 20 minutes for them to write the article 38, but I think, I just, I guess it's a question. Um, I'm sorry, that was so unclear. No, not at all. Uh, and if something is unclear, it's my responsibility. Uh, of course, when you say it's interesting, I'm, I'm, I, I get scared because you know, and the word may mean many different things. And in the UK, usually when people use that, it's not very complimentary and flattering. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I like your idea that gospels are like accepted truth. I do, I do think it, it describes very well what I'm getting at. Um, yeah, sources, I mean, I've done use the vocabulary of sources here because, and actually that's the main point, and I'm not killing what I've been doing for the last 10 years on sources. I, I do think there is such a thing as sources, but when it comes to the structure of international argumentation, it doesn't help. Uh, it's, it's not very instrumental in, in any kind of useful insights to, to speak about sources, at least if you understand sources as as modes of, of law identification. Of course, there are material sources in these modes of legal reasoning, and the material sources are these interventions. Uh, legal reasoning, what I mean by legal reasoning, I, may, I just mean the, 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 the constraints 
or the sets of constraints which, which uh, uh, apply and which restrict this argumentative space. So actually legal reasoning is anything or any legal claim made within this argumentative space created by the gospel. Uh, but it's, it is distinct from, from these interventions. Or these interventions, again, I mean, that's, that's not very controversial. At all. Carl Schmitt used that to define, I said the concept of sovereignty was a creation uh, or the result of an intervention, uh, which was imposed by virtue of which the concept was imposed on everyone. Uh, so that, that's not very controversial, I, I, I believe. These interventions, they, they take place at different levels. There is an intervention when you organize the modes of legal reasoning. Uh, there's an intervention when you actually pick a canonical text. There is an intervention when you, when you link the, the Gospels and the canonical text. I think, for instance, when the ILC claims in the first paragraph of the first report the two-element doctrine comes from Article 38, that's a kind of intervention. Here they repeat the, the, the same Gospels, but, but still it's an intervention. And interventions continue whenever the, the, these Gospels are, are, are applied. Um, but again, I mean, so this is just, just as for the sake of, of clarification. I, I'm glad you can, you can relate somehow to, to the argument. Um, and, and I like the idea of accepted truth in a way which vindicates the theological vocabulary, I believe. But thank you, and thanks for coming. I knew you, you were very busy. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, um, I, I, I also struggle to what to make of uh, this. Uh, and there are two quotes that came to mind uh, listening to you. One is, uh, uh, so John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that was one, and then there's uh, a passage from Carl Llewellyn from the Bramble Bush, uh, where he goes, <coughs> what a court does, what the lawyer does in court, and what he does outside, what relationship either court or lawyer has to do with the law, what relation the law school has to any of these things, around these things, I take it, there floats a pleasant haze. If it were not pleasant, you would not be here. Perhaps you would not if there were no haze. And um, those two things, to me, connect to uh, mysticism. And uh, a bit like Fred, I was bound to, uh, uh, to, to jump on you about the mysticism. But I think, actually, you make a mistake uh, backtracking. Uh, not only because if you've written the book and it's all about gospels and canons, it would be an awful boring thing to do to rewrite it, to avoid it, but because it tells you something uh, <coughs> about why you were drawn to that particular vocabulary to talk about international law. Now, there's a bit of a coup d'épée dans l'eau side to this, right? And if you were a revolutionary in Paris, here you're more like a reactionary. Uh, in that, you know, well, law isn't just about rules, okay. Um, you know, law is just like another form of social practice, and, and, and what you seem to argue about seems to be very much uh, rooted in issues of uh, legitimacy, uh, in ways that aren't clear in, in what you explained today anyway, because I don't know that that's a word you used. 
in your uh, in your presentation. But the whole exercise is about rooting uh, the legitimacy of international law somewhere uh, in there. And yours seems to me to be an argument about which is the location, uh, which is the entry point to the legitimization of international law that is uh, the most accurate description of the process above and beyond the ways in which international law itself provides uh, a representation of legitimacy. And in a way, I take your argument as that, is that if we take it at face value, international law stands for a particular narrative about legitimacy, and you would say, well, actually, this is a misleading narrative. And if we look deeper, and perhaps transversely, there is another narrative of legitimacy that uh, doesn't necessarily follow the accepted or, or dominant uh, discourse or dominant in, in a more positivist way than, uh, than <coughs> people, uh, would have here. So the point uh, is that law, um, <coughs> law constructs the object that it seeks to regulate, obviously, but also at the same time constructs the concept of law uh, in a continuous fashion. Uh, and so that every time a legal argument is made, uh, an argument is made about the, the nature and identity of, uh, of international law, and your argument is highlighting that facet of the discourse without necessarily undermining the surface part of, uh, uh, of the argument. Um, I think that, I mean, mysticism, uh, I think, is interesting because what, what is mysticism? Um, it speaks to something that is partly hidden, something that is partly beyond uh, our grasp. And I, I could see the attractiveness of the title, the Mysticism of International Law, because it offers a clash uh, between uh, international law as rooted in modernity, uh, the, the, the dominance of rationality, the expulsion of spirituality, and um, the, uh, the appeal to that which we can never fully understand. And this is where the Llewellyn uh, quote comes in, right? So uh, if there were no haze, perhaps you would not be here. And that is something that is, of course, not particular to international law, and you were careful not to make that claim. And indeed, I think that what you're saying is really about uh, law in general, but uh, that it's particularly visible in international law because we are constantly confronted with the legitimacy issue in ways that we aren't when we invoke um, uh, constitutional provisions. In France, for example, where you just pull out the Constitution, <coughs> in Canada, the Charter of Rights and Freedom, and there isn't a discussion about legitimacy that is uh, necessary. Uh, in international law, uh, despite Thomas Frank's call, we never got to the post-ontological uh, phase of the discussion. We're stuck there. And in a way, it's a salutary place to be for lawyers because it forces us to confront 
this mystical dimension of law that for uh, that in other areas is is hidden behind walls that need not be uh, torn down uh, and need not be consistently reconstructed as part of the very argument uh, that you need uh, that you need to make. So my. Um, my comment would be, uh, don't shy away from mysticism, uh, but instead exploit it more <coughs> fully than you have up to here, because there is more there than you explained today, uh, anyway. Mm -hmm. I mean, thank you, René. This is immensely helpful. Uh, of course, um, you, find, you find me a bit torn now. Uh, so you're struggling, I'm torn. Uh, and I think the fact that you're struggling is a sign of respect for the argument, so thank you very much. Um, yeah, I mean, should I, shall I resuscitate mysticism and kill the theological vocabulary? Uh, again, I'm, I think there's also a strategic choice here uh, uh, in, in the choice of, of descriptive frameworks and, and vocabularies. Of course, I see the... I do, Indeed, I continue to think there is a mystical dimension in there. And especially with the idea of, you said, the, the hidden part. Huh? The, uh, it's the idea of, I would call the amnesia, the, the, the possibility to forget, and, and the possibility not to care. Uh, there's a possibility of permanence without knowing the origins. And I think that's the mystical part. So yeah, I mean, if, I don't know. Now I'm very torn and very confused but but yes maybe I should put it back um, yeah you say I'm reactionary yeah some people would say this is classical legal thought and maybe it's classical legal thought with a, a 21st century spin uh, yes I can see that um, I am I think the you raise an absolutely fundamental point which is to say that there is actually an elephant in the room and the elephant in the room is is legitimacy, and I think you're entirely right. Uh, actually, I don't use that vocabulary for, and I don't, use, I don't, I don't actually, I don't go down that route for, for different reasons. But, but indeed, it's it's everywhere, and 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 you're right to say that part of my agenda is to uh, invalidate a certain mainstream discourse on legitimacy, and call for a new narrative on legitimacy. And legitimacy does not come from from this canonical text, it comes from something else. It comes from processes which, or at least it's generated by processes by virtue of which all the different actors get a feeling of constraint towards these modes of legal argumentation. Why do these modes of legal argumentations are felt like constraining on all the actors? And yes, that's, that's a huge question, but that would bring me in a completely, th that's maybe the main question. And, and obviously I'm, I'm, uh, I'm brushing it aside. Uh, there, there are many, there, there works on this. I mean, many people like Nathalie and Berman would, would just explain, in, explain this by faith. Uh, Marty would say sentimental attachment uh, to justify this sense of constraint. I'm not sure that's something I want to go into. Uh, Again, uh, you, you choose the battle you want to fight, but, but you're right. I mean, the question is, the question is there. Um, yes, international law constructs its own 
concepts of law, um, and, and I would definitely agree. I think one of the points I'm trying to make is that our modes of legal reasoning cannot explain themselves. So our main doctrines cannot be explained in their own terms. And that's really something, um, I mean, the, the doctrine of sources cannot be explained by the doctrine of sources itself. And, and, and but it's a simple point, maybe. But I can tell you, for Europeans, it's something which, which they find very difficult to come to terms to with. Yeah, profession mm -hmm. of faith, leave of faith, indeed. And cette régression à l'infini vers, vers quelque chose de spirituel euh, comme le, le principe pactas ou le servanda ne peut pas logiquement s'expliquer par euh, le, le principe pactas ou le servanda etc. On, on pourrait faire ça c'est quand même très c'est assez différent quand même c'est très intéressant mm -hmm. I mean that's actually it, it brings I mean it, this whole thing started with my work on sources where, where, where actually I got so tired of people Yeah, claiming that the, these, the sources could be explained in, in their own terms, which actually is the dominant approach. It's scary, I know, but most people will make that claim. They will say, oh, Article 38 is custom international law. How brilliant is that? Remember, I come from Europe. It's a scary place to, in these days, but also for other reasons. actually come out and say it, I think it's there, and I think that you actually admitted as much in the response to the last question. But I'm just wondering, even on the descriptive plane um, of the argument, whether things are actually as, at least the way that you presented it today, and as I've understood it, so I may be wrong, you're setting up two almost hermetically sealed moments. One where there's a source of the text the legal text, and then, and then the text itself. And these, to me, aren't um, distinct. They're just two salient po points on the timeline of a, uh, of a developing legal argument. So we can go to the source, and we can say, we can look at the source, as or, you know, originalists, true originalists do, and say, OK, well, what does this tell us about the law? What does this tell us about how we should reason about this set of legal issues? Or we can go to the text, which is another salient moment in that legal reasoning. But it's not as though the legal reasoning coming out of one or the other are distinct in any um, conceptual way. It's just all part of the same development of legal reasoning. Two pillars gives the, gives the impression as though they're somehow distinct from each other in, in, in a very important and conceptually significant way. Mm -hmm. I mean, thank you, thank you very much. I, I, I very like, <coughs> very much like the second point you, you, you make, actually because I agree with it. But let the first point. Yeah, you critical. Um, maybe I am, but that's sales marketing. 
Let's be honest. Uh, if I, but I mean, you, you're right. If actually, it tells me it, it forces me to, to to say something about the targeted audience. This is not. I'm not speaking to theorists. They would find dull, dry, and, and boring, and unrevolutionary, and non, wouldn't find groundbreaking. I mean, tomorrow I'm going to, to, to Colorado Law School to present this to Pierre Schlag. I'm quite anxious about what he's going to say. He's going to say, well, I've said this for 25 years already, and it is, and it is mystical. And so this work is actually um, targeting, uh, I don't like the word mainstream, but yeah, international lawyers. It's a work for international lawyers. And, and it's really, um, it's, it's, it's a manifestation of anger against the anti-intellectualism and the anti-theoretical inclination of most international lawyers. Maybe not in this country, but in the rest of the world. So that's, but to these guys, if you start your work by saying it's critical, they trash the book. As simple as that. Whereas probably in this country, you need to, to say it's critical in the first line to get people to buy your book. Well, then now, yeah, you're right. I mean, as far as legal reasoning is concerned, it's, it's two pillars, but then leading to one single legal reasoning. You're entirely right. I didn't say that. I need to say this. Entirely agree. So that's, that's, that's a very good point. So it's 7 o'clock. Um, I want to thank everyone for their attention and their questions. I want to thank Sean very much for traveling here and presenting your work in progress and sharing it with us. Thank you to Isabel and to the online chair for hosting it. And, uh, yes. Thank you. You've been listening to Professor Jean Despremont discussing his forthcoming book on the mysticism of international legal argumentation. This recording was produced by Interhentis, the McGill Journal of International Law and Legal Pluralism. For articles, editorials, or to share your thoughts, go to interhentis.com. I-N-T-E-R-G-E-N-T-E-S dot com. Thanks for listening.